0: Hello and welcome back to Mining Stock Daily with me, Paul Harris. Today we're talking about copper exploration in Latin America, Ecuador specifically, and I have great pleasure to be joined by Daniel Earl, President and CEO of Solaris Resources. Good morning, Daniel. Good morning. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you again. Um, this year is just moving ahead like crazy. It's rushing through and uh, I realized it's been quite a while since uh, we've had an update from Solaris. Um, so we, we're going to put that to riots this morning um, your most recent drilling results continuing great results at uh, your Warinza project in southeast Ecuador most recently 105 meters at 0.6% copper equivalent from surface um, tell us Daniel how's the, uh, how's the drilling program going?
1: You know we're we're very pleased with it. it it's kind of in many ways um uh you know we've had some surprising developments um that have uh kind of added to the task that we have drilling off this kind of voluminous system you know we set out if you recall uh from the last time we spoke after the resource which basically took in drilling to the end of 2021 with the obvious uh kind of task in front of us of of continuing to drill out the extensions you know, what we call the northeast extension of the high-grade starter pit from Central. And then drilling out the adjacent East deposit, which had been discovered late in the resource drilling program for Central, uh, you know, only a, f- a few months before the cutoff of the drilling database. And so the resource that was published in 2022, essentially it was the Central deposit with the margin of the East deposit. And, and so that was the, uh, the program that we, we set about on. In uh, in 2022 and continuing on into 2023, and when you look at it today, we've essentially doubled the drilling database. We've accomplished the goals that we set out uh, from the beginning of that program of drilling off the northeast extension of the central deposit. We've more than doubled the size of that high-grade starter pit in terms of the dimensions and so on, um, and then drilling out the east deposit proper. Uh, but really, we've had some important developments. These are the surprises that I was alluding to that have come come up through that uh, that kind of uh, resource or follow-on resource drilling program. And the first is the discovery of of a second deposit, potentially a much higher-grade deposit, um, within what was we originally thought of as the Rinza East footprint. But turns out to include uh, a separate, a distinct. Uh, porphyry deposit to the south of the southeast which we're now calling Rinsa Southeast and so we've had some uh, very high-grade drill results there the discovery hole was 300 meters of 0.65 from surface and then we've added some holes either side of that we've got a series of kind of step out holes coming to expand on that southeast deposit Um, so that's one of the developments then the second development is a discovery at Patrimonio and so this is going the opposite direction this is to the southwest of the uh, Warrens' central deposit. This is very much a new discovery uh, based on uh, mapping and and sampling an area that we hadn't previously accessed and really at the very beginning of of understanding this potentially large uh, robust mineralizing system, quite a different character than the mineralization at central that we have developing at Patrimonio. So these are these are some positive uh, surprises that are very exciting but are not going to be captured by the next resource estimate for uh for for the for the rinse you know let's call it the main uh deposit as it's developing where you've got continuity between the central
0: and the east deposit that will be captured in that next update well thank you daniel Um, and what's the sort of timing update on that resource update on the the central part of warinza
1: yeah well it's always interesting you know you never find the margins of of this system and so where you draw the cutoff but i think basically you know 18 months of drilling into the first resource update we'll have something similar to that uh, in terms of completing the drilling uh, before where we have a logical point to cut off for the next resource update. So if we cut off sometime towards the end of this year and then publish a resource update early next year then that would make a lot of sense. But, um, but, but bear, bear in mind, of course, we're, we're not going to have uh, the Southeast deposit drilled. We're still at the beginning of, of kind of the drill out for, for that discovery. Only a few holes into it. We're, we're trying to get aggressive in terms of some large step outs at Southeast, but I think there's still going to be a job that we have to do in terms of, you know, the next follow on program in drilling out that southeast deposit. And then of course, it's not going to take in patrimonial, we're at the very beginning, the discovery phase uh, for that deposit. And then likewise, Werencia South and Werencia West are going to be uh, uh, drill outs for, you know, for future resource updates. But I think that broadly gives you a picture of the, the, the timeline for resource growth here.
0: Thank you, Daniel. Now imagine one of the the wonderful things about exploration drilling is one hole can completely change what you're doing or what's happening and so you know so far you've been i guess you've been advancing with the wererinsawurrinsa we're Essential and you know looking at that's going to perhaps be the the high grade startup pit area, but as you said you've recently discovered this other system, this other deposit with potentially higher grades, so I guess that if, if depending on the size scale, et cetera, that could now become the the first Thing to attack with, with mining. So, how, how are your plans and outlook potentially changing through these new discoveries?
1: Yeah, well, look, that's a that's a really really interesting question. And I think you've touched on the reality of these projects that they're you know they're ever changing as you continue to drill and learn more about them. Then you know obviously the resources change, and that has implications on down the line for mine plans and studies and so on. But I think when we look at it as a company, you know, the value add for us, the way that we can uh, kind of lift ourselves up off the bottom in terms of valuation and start getting back into, you know, sensible territory from a valuation standpoint is to advance this project. And the ultimate goal, of course, is to get the project, you know, through studies and permitted. And that puts you in the best position as a developer to command, uh, you know, the most attractive valuation, particularly in... Uh, when you're talking about global scale copper, like we here, we are here with the Tier One project in the Rinsa project that's developing, um, and so we've we've got to we can't put that off and and do a, a massive multi-year kind of drill out uh, before getting into those studies because as I say, that's really where the value add is. So we've got to, you know we've clearly got a project at Rinsa Central. We've elected for a follow-on resource drilling program that'll take in the East deposit. Um, and the the northeast extension and the growth in the starter pit, I think that'll essentially be the project where we'll update resources, update our internal economic studies and technical studies,
0: and then move forward with that project as we continue exploration around it. Okay. I think it's worth noting that Warinza is already on the top 30 lists list of projects of undeveloped copper projects and uh, on that list I think there's only about nine that are not in the hands of a major mining company so you're entering sort of that very rare space of an independently owned large-scale copper project. Yeah, ab-
1: absolutely, and and uh, you know we, we've we've talked about this before, but but these are these 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 tier one projects. Depending on, on on how you define it, if you use like for example the Barrick definition, you know Mark Bristow is one of the only executives who's actually put quantified this, but you know he talks about you know six million tons of contained copper in in reserves or sort of near reserves and then uh, production potential in the, in the bottom half of the cost curve. Other companies would define it differently, but when you look at this RENSA project, it's clearly by anyone's definition a global scale project. And, um, you know, we're even on our first resource update, which we're going to, you know, greatly expand upon in the next update, where we're through those sorts of, of levels. And certainly the costs are, I think, among the most attractive aspects of, you know, of, of, of this project in particular, and development in Ecuador in, in general. Um, and so these are rare beasts to begin with, but I think what's going to be the defining feature of, uh, you know, project development in in this cycle that we have um, in in copper is actually going to relate to capital intensity. To me, with the capital inflation that we've seen in the sector, and and maybe a bit of history is useful here. But if you look at, you know, kind of the early days of of a major copper development in, in in northern Chile and and then in through Peru you know, through the 90s and the 2000s, you had capital intensities that were, you know, in and around $7,000 per ton of copper production. And then those numbers greatly increased through the 2000s and then the 2010 cycle, you know, you're all the way up around uh, kind of rule of thumb of $18,000 per ton of copper equivalent uh, production. But if you look at the most recent developments, so for example, Anglo-Americans Echo project, or Tech Resources QB2 project, those are at $25,000 a ton and $31,000 a ton. So you see the way that the capital intensity you know, just continues to rise. And if you listen to Tech, they're actually saying for them to redo their QB2 project, the capital cost would be significantly higher from the 8.1 billion that they actually spent potentially north of $10 billion. So I think this is where the industry certainly is gonna focus on capital costs. And I think investors would be wise uh, to begin to focus on this as well. We have the benefit in southeastern Ecuador of having a comparable Mirador, which is only 40 kilometers down the highway from us, almost a perfect comparable for a central deposit. Same sort of setting, you know, just off the highway, uh, the power grid, ample access to water, low elevation, uh, the other benefits that attend to any project in Ecuador, the dollarized system, low cost labor, low taxes, et cetera of that development, and this is a current development, they're in the process of expanding this out to uh, 46 million tons per annum of throughput, which is global scale production, you know, 250,000 tons a year of copper equivalent production. Their capital costs, including the expansion, have come in at a capital intensity of $11,000 a ton. So this is like half to a third of the capital costs of comparable projects at high elevation, remote settings in the Andes, like Echo and QB2, and and those projects aren't even as extreme as some of them um, that you were alluding to in the industry uh, uh, pipeline. So this is really, I think, what people need to be focused on when they're looking at that inventory of projects in industry and trying to decipher between which projects are going to get developed first and then which projects are going to be waiting around for, you know, the much higher copper prices that I think there's a consensus around, um, you know, being expected
0: for the future. At the end of the day, it's all about making money, isn't it? Um, okay. Yeah, well, it- absolutely. But but in particular, I, I think it's about
1: making uh, the hurdles that are required, the internal rates of return hurdles that are required to get one of these projects san- sanctioned, whether it's a, a Chinese state-owned enterprise or one of the Western majors. You know, they tend to be looking for, you know, 15% internal rates of return. And the capital intensities that I gave you, when you're up at $25,000 a ton, where Caveco is, you know, that requires a $475 copper price to get to a 15% RR. Um, QB2 at $31,000 a ton, you know, they require a copper price well north of $5 to get to that internal hurdle rate. So, so these are the numbers that people are going to be looking at and thinking, you know, if you've got a project which is going to be high capex that's remote, um, that you need those $5 and $6 copper prices to justify it moving forward. And um, the fortunate part about where we're located in Ecuador, the strength of the Rarinsa project with the infrastructure around it, the high-grade starter pit and so on, is that you're just you're, you're at a vastly different point um, on on the spectrum of kind of capital intensities where even a three-dollar copper will suffice.
0: Okay, thank you, Daniel. Um, A a lot of good uh, things to sort of take apart there. Um, Well, we're on the subject of money. Um, You raised the company raised what thirty odd million through the exercise of warrants back in March. Um, That's obviously a good few months ago now. So, how's the sort of cash balance of the company um, at the moment? So, look, we've got about fifteen million dollars US of cash in the company,
1: and that takes us through you know into next year quite comfortably. And what we've said is that we're gonna be looking by the end of the year to bring in additional capital. With the valuation of the company where it is, what we're specifically focused on is non-dilutive or minimally dilutive uh, sources of capital. And so there's a number of initiatives there uh, that we're looking at. We've got some firm options, we've got other options that we're looking at, you know, kind of developing and firming up. And uh, it's an ongoing uh, process, but you'll, you'll see some news from us certainly, I think, in the coming weeks On that front, Uh, there's there's really no issue in terms of capital funding for the for this company, and uh, and you know we look forward to getting that news out and laying, you know any any uh, any kind of interest around this point.
0: I've got to go fishing around that Daniel. So, are you looking at perhaps getting um, investment at a premium from a, a bigger mining house? So th-
1: those would be among the kind of the strategic, um, you know, uh, um, um, options that we'd be advancing discussions around. And then, of course, there are Western parties, it becomes a bit more complicated when you're looking at some of the Asian parties. Um, and so different types of transactions and so on that become relevant. And that's all part of the mix. There's pros and cons to all of these, uh, but there are a number of other options outside of those also that we've uh, been bringing along. And so, you know, we'll make the best decision. The, 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 the thing that shareholders can count on with, with, uh, with Solaris is that nobody are larger shareholders of the company than the management team itself. So uh, very significant investment in the company. We're very sensitive uh, to dilution and valuation and so on. And so we'll make the best decision, um, you know, based on the options that we have available and you can look forward to that in the coming weeks
0: okay uh, thank you and um, what's your viewpoint on on streams and royalties and things like that um, you know th- we're not focused on, on 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 those options to be clear i, I
1: think they have a place and, and, a, and a kind of a growing place and 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 a role in in kind of uh, project finance but companies really need to be sensitive about the timing of when they look to those sorts of options and then the kind of impact that it can have in encumbering the asset and then reducing the strategic appeal of the asset. And so we've been, uh, we're, of course, hypersensitive to those considerations at Solaris with our mandate. Those are not options that we're looking
0: at at the moment. OK, thank you. Now, um, you spoke a lot about Ecuador being a great place to develop a mine from a, from a cost perspective and various other things. But let, let's talk a, a little bit more broadly about Ecuador if I may Ecuador's going through a presidential election process recently had the first round um, and there's going to be the runoff in the in in october now both presidents both of the candidates seem to be posit- would be positive for mining um what's your view of uh, the two candidates
1: yeah i think I think that's exactly right and and I would say that this is not uh this is not something that's unexpected, so what we didn't know. And and in particular, we're talking about the runner-up that would contend for the runoff election which will be, you know, held October 15th. You know, I think there was was broad agreement among the polls that Luisa Gonzalez, the UNES, or Correa candidate uh, would finish in first place. So while we didn't know the details, I think we were pretty comfortable uh, that we were going to have two candidates that represented a continuity of the pro-mining policy stance of the country of Ecuador. Uh, going going into that runoff uh, and con- certainly coming out of the election. Okay, but the way that it actually played out, uh, so you had Luisa Gonzalez, which was expected, finish in first place. She arrived at uh, I think about a 33 percent share of the vote. Um, and again, she she represents she's Correa's hand chosen candidate. She was a former you know labor minister. She promises to continue. Korea's political agenda, and so obviously this is, you know, an emphasis on increasing social spending uh, and so on, but, but that track record of Korea includes uh, the 2014 reforms that facilitated development of large-scale mining in Ecuador, and that's something that they've spoken specifically to, you know, in placing emphasis on continuing that policy and continuing large-scale development in Ecuador to continue to fund that uh, increased social spending okay and so that was the part of the I think this outcome that was that was pretty certain and I think anyone in the mining sector would be comfortable uh, with Luisa Gonzalez emerging from the October runoff election as the new president of Ecuador. Uh, The part that was unexpected was the rise of Daniel Noboa and so he was polling at uh, sort of in the mid single digits he performed extremely well in the debate I think most people regarded him as the winner of that debate and then the surprise result in the election where he came in in second place at something like 24% vote share. And and he is a very interesting uh, now political figure. This is uh, a, a young man, uh, so in his mid-30s, um, Western educated. He's regarded, you see him described as, as being center left. I regard him as being center right. He's certainly aligned with the business sector. He's a former member Obviously, of the National Assembly, but then also the Economic Development Commission. Uh, this is the son of Alvaro Noboa, who's uh, you know famed. This is the wealthiest man in Ecuador, a Benita um, Benita banana uh, kind of magnate from the wealthiest family in Ecuador. They have interests in all sorts of uh, you know sectors through the other um, uh, 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 children. Um, but his platform very much focused on uh, fostering job creation, uh, tax reform bringing in foreign investment. Um, as it relates to the resource sector, he's talked about, you know, the importance of growing revenues, increasing oil production, uh, you know, free trade agreements to enhance that foreign direct investment, which is going to be key to growing those revenues. Uh, the topic of mining has come up. It wasn't a focal point of his his platform, uh, but in relation to the referendum vote on the SUNY, essentially suspending um, a significant amount of oil production, something like 50,000 barrels a day of the Sunni National Park, very controversial of course, um, but, but, but costing something like, if you believe the press, a billion dollars a year of revenue to the government and Noboa has come out and stated the obvious that that lost revenue from the oil sector is going to have to be made up by increased growth and accelerated growth uh, in the mining sector and of course that's a, uh, uh, while well, it's stating the obvious, it's it's a welcome ne- message, nevertheless, I think, for investors. So we feel very good about both of these candidates. There was a concern, I suppose, going in around whoever finished in the runner-up spot about whether they would have the same governance issue that the outgoing president, Guillermo Lasso, had where he was sort of famous for a combative approach and an inability to build consensus around passing legislation. Uh, but I think NEBOLA in the statements that the other candidates have made and the, you know, that analysts and so on looking at this have made, uh, I think actually there's a lot of optimism that NEBOLA is in a better position to work with the National Assembly and actually advance uh, important legislation after the election than even uh, the Correa candidate would be with a greater voter share and a much larger position in the National Assembly in terms of the
0: seats that they hold. Thank you, Daniel. Now, I want to sort of focus on a little bit more on the SUNY. During the the first round of the presidential election, there were two other um, items on the ticket, depending on where you were in the country. One was whether to continue to allow oil expectations exploitation in Sunni which you refer to, but also whether the mining in the Chocorandino, that was uh, a vote specific or referendum specific to that area. Um, as a, an aside, and perhaps in a pedantic aside, I think it's uh, it's quite interesting that um, voters in Ecuador voted to keep the oil in the ground in Asuny, when only a couple of years ago it was the increase, the government's attempt to increase fuel prices, which sparked the protests, which... In a roundabout way led to these elections, um, but that 's perhaps me being pedantic let 's uh, talk a little bit about the the choco andino that was a, a vote very spe- about a very specific area of the country north of capital Quito, where people were looking to to ban mining and that vote was uh, pretty much unanimously unanimously carried I think it was a sixty or seventy percent uh, people said yeah we, we 're going to go with this vote." Um, what does this mean for for mining in Ecuador? Or what do these two votes mean for mining in Ecuador?
1: Yeah, uh, we, those g- great questions. We can talk about the referendum results, but I think you actually touched on quite an interesting topic there about the incongruence of, you know, these environmental sensibilities and restricting resource development and production and so on um, in these sensitive areas. And then the desire for greater job creation, addressing the debt crisis, uh, creating uh, you know obviously uh, uh, jobs and, 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 and revenues to support increased social spending and infrastructure development and all the rest of it. And, and I think actually that you, you've got a, a, a recognition um, among, among the, the, the voting public, and certainly you see it reflected in all of the candidates in, in, in the first round of the voting, you know, uh, um, if not explicitly, then tacitly acknowledging, uh, the need for greater uh, resource sector development uh, to, to support the uh, the kind of uh, the demands of the voters for this job creation and uh, you know kind of economic opportunity and, 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 and so on and so when you look up up and down the line you see that candidates are are embracing even in quarters which you wouldn't expect like for example um, Yaku Paris who uh, was considered uh, the environmentalist uh, candidate. Certainly in his days as Asway uh, prefect, he, you know, he actually led the charge against, um, you know, mining in, in, in that province. Um, but, you know, if you look at his message in, um, you know, in, in terms of his uh, platform for, for this e- election, it's a much more moderated message. He's talking about restricting mining only in the most sensitive in, of, of environmental areas. The, the acceptance of mining where it has the consent of communities and so on. So, uh, you know, a much more moderated message that reflects that, you know, that, that economic reality uh, confronting the country. And and I, say, and I think that that tells you that, 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 that there's now a recognition in Ecuador um, that, um, you know, that mining is going to be part of the future of the country, a necessary part of the future of the country. Okay, so that's an aside. In terms of the, uh, the referendum questions, there were two of them. There was a national question uh, over the Yesuni. So this went to all the voters in all the various provinces. And that came in 58% essentially against continued oil production in the Yesuni. And the Yesuni, to be clear, this is a national park, uh, particularly biodiverse history of controversial oil production and environmental uh, spills and indigenous confrontations and, and, and so on. And um, and if you believe the media, and I think these figures are, are, are slightly, well, not slightly, but significantly overstated, this is this is shutting in that oil production would cost something of the order of a billion dollars a year in lost revenue. And I think for, um, the, the reality is that the government can't afford to lose a billion dollars, and so if you've lost that billion dollars of revenue from oil production, you've got to make it up elsewhere. And uh, I think mining is kind of the direction that the, the country was already headed Um, as early as 2014 when Korea made the reforms and he specifically cited the need to diversify away from the oil sector um, and develop the mining sector to support the the kind of the growth and revenues to the country. Um, So that's the Yasuni. Um, I think it's a you know in in terms of long-term implication even if indirect I think it's a positive uh, for the mining sector. Uh, On the Choco and Dino question this is specifically for Pinchincha province which hosts the capital uh, Quito, okay, and so for reference to Solaris, this is something like 400 kilometers away um, in northern Ecuador where Solaris Rinsa project is in the southeastern corner of, of Ecuador. And the Choco Andino, this is a, again a, a, a sensitive environmental site, great biodiversity. It's actually a UNESCO um, protected site. And what you have there is, is, is a great deal of illegal mining and the environmental destruction that, uh, that relates to that. And so the ban on mining activity in Chocó and Dino—it was widely expected that that would pass. And um, and I would again, I would look at this even if it's an unhelpful, you know, headline at a superficial level. I I would say that a clampdown on illegal mining um, is is actually uh, you know a positive in terms of the sustainability of the formal mining sector, Uh, because of course we always in the formal mining sector you're always at risk of being tarred with the same brush as the informal sector, and all the uh, environmental destruction and social ills and so on that go along with that security issues and and, 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 and so on and so the more that we have um, uh, 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 cl- a clamp down on on illegal mining, I think it 's to the benefit of the formal mining sector,
0: the responsible mining sector of the country Thank you, Daniel. Uh, thank you for the great detail on both of those regarding a follow up question on the Chocrandino, does, Would that ban impact all of the Pachincha area because there are some formal Mining projects presumably going to do things to in you know, a good yeah. international environmental. Standards. Yeah, I believe
1: I, I believe there are some claims, but there were no serious projects There was sort of in the um you know claims that were speculative sort of claims that were 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 were, were put in place, but but no serious projects are Im- impacted by this. I don't think any serious proponent would take on a project within a UNESCO site in in any country, let alone Ecuador.
0: Okay, this so this is specifically about the UNESCO site. Okay. Right. Um, one more sort of point to touch upon regarding sort of government of Ecuador and regulation, etc. Before uh, before we, we draw our conversation to a close, um, recent weeks we've seen the government issue investment agreements with uh, specific companies, but we've also seen the courts stand up and say, "Well, actually, you need to do prior consultations." Um, this perhaps at first glance looks like. Uh, um, you know, one step forward, two step back, or you know, a little bit of confusion. At least, what, what's your view on uh, what, what's happening?
1: Yeah, so, so we've seen a number of developments in in Ecuador. So, for for example, in a, with relevance to Solaris' Warenza project, we've seen the Mirador project, which again is is a great comparable for our project because it's essentially, you know, it's a very similar resource endowment, forty kilometers down the highway, similar sort of setting. Uh, similar type of development as as, as we invention, uh, envision in terms of scale and so on, um, and and that and that project received an amended permit for their expansion, and to see that mine go from uh, roughly um, 20 million tons per annum out to 46 million tons per annum, and the permit allows for up to 51 million tons per annum. So that'd be a truly global scale mine uh, in terms of uh, production output, and then very very low cost to go along with that. And then you saw uh, with Sol gold, uh, their, their renewa- renewal of, of their concessions. This is sort of uh, you know business as normal um, in, in, uh, in Ecuador, an exploitation agreement. You saw a significant commitment for investment for the Congreos project by Wheaton and then an investment protection project for another gold project, which would be a $400 million project in, in Azuay province. You have seen some holdups in this, um, you know, uh, the the sort of intermediate period between the outgoing Congress and then with the new Congress that's now elected actually become seated in terms of advancing legislation. And so, you know, during that interim period, you have uh, the, the outgoing President Guillermo Lasso advancing legislation by decree, but that's subject to constitutional court oversight. And so on some of these questions, the constitutional court has intervened and said, no, this is actually the business of the assembly, and this 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 needs to be passed through legislation. And so that'll have to wait uh, until the new assembly is, is is actually seated. So these are really timing issues that we're talking about here. You know, as it relates to the issue of consultation, you'll recall, and we've spoken about this before, Solaris from the very beginning, its entire strategy was based on not, ha- not just having you know, done consultation with the with the local communities, but actually having the consent of the local communities, and we formalize this in you know explicit community agreements, an actual strategic alliance or partnership with with our local communities for the development of the Wurundsap project, and that's how we've operated, you know, uh, from basically from the beginning, you know, under an MOU and then superseded by an impact and benefits agreement in 2020, updated in 2022, and then with the expansion of the project and it now entering the, you know, being in the advanced exploration phase, then moving on to um, uh, the further phases of development, we'll be updating that impact and benefits agreement again. And so embedded in the project development strategy is explicit consent from the communities um, on their uh, on 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 their lands, of which they are the are the sole uh, holders of, of of legal rights to the, to those lands, and so that's been that's been a strategy from the outset, um, a forward looking strategy that obviously mitigates against any questions over consultation in the future, which we anticipated.
0: Well, thank you very much for that, Daniel. I think it's worth highlighting that uh, consultation. And consent are two very different things and often results in problems because communities believe consultation implies or infers consent when, depending on the, the scheme, that's not necessarily the case. Um, anyway, really great update, Daniel, both on Wurinsa on and Ecuador in general. I really, really appreciate that. Solaris Resources trades on the TSX under SLS and on the OTCQB under SLSSF. Daniel Earl, President and CEO, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much. And that's all for me. Stay tuned to more from Mining Stock Daily. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.